We Are Bad People, we ran over quite a bit in this week's recording. So this is a two-parter. The second part will be available in a few days. My name is Jerry Maguire and you're listening to Parliamental, the podcast that talks about Scottish politics from an insider's point of view. I'm joined in this and future podcasts by my co-host, one of the 56 SNP MPs who were voted in in May's general election. Due to a seismic cephalogical swing, I'd like to introduce the MP for Glasgow North East and the biggest swinger in Scotland, Anne McLaughlin. <laughs> Hello, oh, Jerry. Uh, <laughs> Anne, it's good to have you back. Thank you. It's uh, good to be here. <laughs> In fact, it's great to be here in Glasgow at last. Warm Glasgow, warm sunny Glasgow. We're recording this just now and it's a torrential storm outside. Yeah, but it's still lovely to be in Glasgow. I've missed it. I want to open with a quote about an article in this week's New Statesman. The journalist was writing about you and described you as from Greenock, working class, bohemian and widely travelled. Anne is an unlikely but gifted politician, ferociously anti-racist, progressive and passionate about Scottish independence. That sounds all right. Well, I have to point out... The, the person who wrote that used to work for me and <laughs> All right. she would say that. <laughs> One of those ones, okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was lovely, it was yeah. uh, very nice to read. Um, yeah, she's a very uh, generous person okay. as the writer. Um, do you think that's a fair assessment? I'm not going to ask you to comment on the, you know, you're great type stuff, but the, you know, ferociously anti-racist, progressive, passionate about independence, does that describe you? Uh, ferociously, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, all of those things. Ferocious, ferociously anti-racist, definitely. What was the other thing? Um, gifted, for, uh, progressive and passionate. Yeah. Aren't we all in the SNP? That's true. Bohemian and widely travelled. I love the bohemian bit. I was so pleased when I read that and I thought, okay, so that means I don't actually have to go and buy all those suits I thought I had to buy. I'll just be me. Yes, I like the bohemian. Widely travelled, not as widely as I would like. I think what she's referring to there is I worked in Sri Lanka for a few months a number of years ago. Um, Other than that, it's really just European countries and Jamaica that I've been to, but certainly, oh, hang on, Singapore, Oh, yeah, Dubai. Yep, Dubai. But these were all dropping off um, on my way to somewhere else. <laughs> but I think I think what she means is because I lived in Sri Lanka for a few months. Um, yeah, I've only been to I've only been to Dubai. I only stopped off in Dubai. Where else going somewhere else? Well, I stopped off for four days. Um, <laughs> strange place, but yeah. ginormous beds. And um, I went on a on a double decker double decker. I'm sure they don't call it that. An open top bus tour. Yeah. Um, and it was really just the commentary was really just, um, and this is the biggest whatever in the world, and this is the longest whatever in the world, and this is the most wonderful <laughs> whatever in the world. And Singapore was a wee bit like that as well. Uh, it was quite quite boastful, interesting, but boastful. But on the Dubai uh, open top bus, I insisted on sitting, I was with a friend, I insisted on sitting upstairs in the open Bit. And um, mm. I lasted about six minutes and <laughs> dashed into the air condition, but I've never felt heat like that in my life. Anyway, we are recording this in the temporary offices in Royston. Um, it's a great space, but it's not the most suitable for drop-ins and stuff. Have you got any ideas about where your constituency office is going to be? Well, I'm considering a number of options. I'm actually considering um, a long-term let here in Royston um, in Rosemount, but not in this particular office. It's far too big. Um, ideally, I would have a shop front in Springburn. And the reason for that is because of the train lines. So if you live in Milton 
Ashfield, Postle Park, you can get a train from there to Springburn. If you live in Deniston, you get either end of Deniston, you can get a train from there to Springburn. So, for, and there are lots and lots of buses. For me, that feels like the most easily accessible place. And the reason for a shop front is so that we can have, you know, a fairly relaxed drop-in service so people don't have to make appointments weeks in advance. I think we need to look at how we do that so that the staff who are in there can actually get on with progressing some of the stuff that we're doing on behalf of constituents. So maybe the mornings uh, are open to drop-in or whatever, but a shop front would be more accessible. My predecessor had an office inside a business centre that closed at tea time every day, I think, and my intent is that we'll have some evening openings and some weekend openings because I want it to be used widely by uh, people right across the constituency. It's just a shame that we can't have more than one office. We probably could afford to have more than one office, but that would mean reducing the number of staff in each. And you have to have two staff when you've got people, members of the public coming in. You've got to uh, have two staff on at all times. So staffing-wise, we couldn't manage that. It's a a strange shape, the constituency, and there's no real sort of centre. There's multiple centres throughout it. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think Springburn probably would be the, the most accessible from all the corners. Yeah, I mean, I would love to have my office in Milton or Postle Park, simply because I think that end of the constituency has been neglected. I don't mean by anyone in particular, I just mean neglected by um, local authorities. Although we've got the big new uh, health centre in, in Postle Park now, I, d- I would like to be able to do that, but that means that people from the other end of the constituency are going to really struggle to get there. Having said that, I'm really anxious that I get something settled as soon as possible because until I've got a permanent office and staff in it, I can't really do all the things I want to do for the constituents. So I'm anxious to get this resolved as soon as possible. And if I can't get what I ideally want, then I'll just take something else and we'll find ways of of um, opening up to other people. Like, for instance, if we ended up in Postle Park, I'll have more surgeries at the other end of the constituency so mm. people can come and see us. Although you've got temporary offices just now, you've still been holding um, some sort of constituency engagement. I know you've had some uh, meetings with the public or people in your team have been having meetings with the public. Um, how's that going? Uh, really well. Um, and we're only advertising at the moment, week by week, Uh, We're advertising, like today, we'll start advertising next week's drop-in advice sessions. Um, The reason I can't plan well in advance is because right now I have one member of staff and she can't do the advice clinics on her own. Unfortunately, I can't be here when they're happening because I'm required to be down at Westminster uh, most of the week. I mean, that hopefully will tail off a wee bit and I'll get more time in the constituency. But in terms of um, advice clinics through the week um, Annette who works for me has to have somebody with her and we don't always know who that person's going to be until the weekend before um, but uh, that said we've had a lot of people coming in I, I mean I'm getting a lot of emails from people and if anyone has emailed me and I've not got back to you please email and prompt me because I had somebody yesterday who emailed and she was quite disappointed that she'd waited 
a week and I was so glad that she emailed me because I'd actually missed that email. Mm. I'm getting over 100 emails a day <sighs> and I'm the only one who's got access to my emails mm. at the moment until my staff get through security. Mm. So I'm having to deal with that and be in the chamber and do all the other things that, that the MP has to do. So I try on a Sunday morning to sit for a few hours going through the hundreds of emails and picking out the ones that I need to prioritise. But I did miss this woman's email and it was quite a serious issue. Anyway, we're back on track now and she's really glad that she emailed me. So if anyone out there hasn't had a response, feel free to prompt me. You're not bothering me. I want to know if you need help with something. Um, and then I say to those people, if we need further information, I invite them to come along to the advice clinic. So, yeah, we're getting a lot of people. The past few weeks have seen a few maiden speeches and we're going to listen to Tommy Shepherds. Yeah, I just also want to say, do not, do not mistake our intentions, because there's already been a few jibes about this. Um, we do, of course, want self-government for Scotland, there's no secret of that. But we had a referendum last year, and we, we know the result of that referendum. We lost it. We accept that we lost the referendum. We may not agree with it, but we did. And we did not, in this election, seek a mandate for independence, and we did not get one. And we have not come to this chamber to argue the case for independence. That debate and the, the debate about the next chapter in Scotland's history will take place in a different chamber, in a different parliament, 400 miles to the north of this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have come here to give Scotland a strong voice within this parliament. We have come here to represent the people who elected us, and you will find us constructively engaged in order to deliver that. We come here not to disrupt, but to be constructive. We come here to be good parliamentarians and to use the often arcane and antiquated processes that exist in this government for the benefit of the people who elected us. I think Tommy Shepherd summed up the mission statement quite well there. What do you think? <laughs> Tommy's fantastic. I was sitting there when he made his maiden speech and um, he had his notes, but he just put them down, turned them upside down so he couldn't see them and uh, made the rest of us feel completely inadequate. But yes, he summed it up properly. For all of us, the end game is independence. And I will, you know, I will be arguing for independence. I'm a member of the SNP. I'm an SNP activist. But my job down there is not to get independence. My job down there is to represent people in this constituency and also across Scotland and get the best possible deal for the people of Scotland. And here's also a clip from Joanna Cherry. Lest there be any doubt, I and my party are fundamentally opposed to the repeal of the Human Rights Act. Yeah. And we would consider it a thoroughly retrograde step if that were to be done. Any reduction in current human rights safeguards will threaten the fundamental freedoms to which everyone is entitled in a modern democratic society governed by the rule of law. We should not forget, as the Shadow Home Secretary reminded us, that the people who have benefited from human rights protection afforded by the Human Rights Act are often the most vulnerable in our society. For example, disabled people affected by welfare reform and also the families of military personnel killed on active service because the Ministry of Defence supplied them with outdated equipment. Yeah. Nor, as the Shadow Home Secretary reminded us, should we forget that the United Kingdom was in at the foundation of the European Convention of Human Rights and that it was brought forward largely at the suggestion of Winston Churchill. That was Joanna Cherry there laying out the case of the Human Rights Act in her maiden speech. Um, what's the debate in the Chamber like around this? Is this something that MPs actually want to get rid of? 
Um, well, we've not really had a proper debate about it, but there are a number of the ones that seem to be speaking most loudly about it are the backbenchers. Um, I mean, apart from us and apart from, you know, the Labour members, uh, the backbenchers uh, on the Tory benches who are opposed to the repeal. Um, and I think it was a combination of their input and knowing how hard we were all going to fight it that, that led to them kind of backing off a wee bit. But we shouldn't tell ourselves that the, the threat has gone. The threat hasn't gone. It's just it's just been pushed back a little bit. They still have every intention of repealing the Human Rights Act. And um, and so we have to we have to have a strategy in place now. And I'm part of Joanna Cherry's uh, team, um, as you said, the Justice and Home Affairs policy team we have to we're looking at strategy now to ensure that we, we don't wait until they spring it on us to fight it we have to be fighting it every step of the way right now yeah it's definitely been sort of just put back or postponed for the minute it felt like too many too many arms in the fire just now and they wanted to wait a wee bit so yeah i think it, yeah. it definitely will come back up have there been any other maiden speeches that have sort of piqued your interest? You don't have to name everyone, obviously, but... Do you know, they've all been so good, but the one that really impacted on me was um, Philippa Whitford's speech, uh, Dr Philippa Whitford, and she was sat next... I was sat next to her as she made her speech, and again, of course, she used no notes. Um, <laughs> I mean, she'd written it beforehand, but she didn't... She didn't bother to bring her notes. Um, and I would so love to be that person. But um, the thing about Philippa's speech, um, she, when she was talking about families and what families and children really need to enable them to get on in life. And I uh, don't know Philippa that well. Um, so I was really pleased to hear her talk about things that really matter around, you know, equality and justice and uh, social justice in particular, you know, ensuring that people are not living in poverty. And I don't know if it was because I was sitting next to her, but suddenly I really felt it. It wasn't just the words. Anyone can say the words that she said. I really felt it from her. And um, and I couldn't congratulate her at the end because I was so close to tears. Yeah. It was it was really incredibly emotional for me. But we were laughing afterwards because when I eventually gathered myself together, and I turned to her and I said, "Philippa," and I just said what I'd said to you, and I said I was really very close to tears. And uh, see, even now I'm thinking about what she said to me, and she said, "Well, you know, I never wanted to stop being a breast cancer surgeon." I loved my job. She said, I did this because I felt I had to, because it needed to be done, she said, and and I meant every word that I said. And I looked at her and she looked at me and she said, can we now stop talking because I'm about to cry? At which point, Hannah Bardell, who's the MP for Livingston, leaned over and said, you know, Philippa, that was wonderful. She said, I was close to tears. And I thought, oh, for goodness sake, the three of us <laughs> are going to be sitting here in tears. And the, you can see the Tories watching us all the time, curiously watching us. And I thought if the three of us start bubbling, that'll just be too much for them. So, but it was, it was, her speech was very powerful. And as I say, I don't know if I watched it, but if I watched it back now, I wonder if it would have the same mm-hmm. impact or if it was just because I was sitting close mm-hmm. to, so close to her and I could feel it coming from her, but mm-hmm. it was it was brilliant. So we've heard a lot of maiden speeches so far, but I've not heard yours. Well, you know, I'm not a maiden, so... <laughs> <laughs> is, that your, is that your official reason? <laughs> um, how do you go about booking it in? Because you said before it's an interesting process around how you sort of try and book the speech and you have to get in in advance. How does that work? 
Well, basically, you let your whips know, uh, the SNP whips know that you would like to speak in a particular debate. So whatever debates are coming up, we sort of know two weeks in advance, in advance what most of them are going to be, not all of them. So if there's an opposition day debate, we don't know until the last minute what it's about. Um, I, I, think, I think I've got that right. So basically, you let the whips know if you want to put in a bid to speak in a debate. And so I could, in theory, put in a bid. There's a couple of debates this week I could put in a bid for. It doesn't mean you will get speaking um, because you're on the speaker's list. But Patricia Gibson, who's the MP for Largs, well, I keep calling it Largs, she's the MP for a much bigger area than that. <laughs> the MP for Nardini's, I call her. But Patricia Gibson was due to speak on Thursday and she didn't get taken, so now she's in on Monday. But who knows if she'll get taken on Monday, which I would find really stressful. The reason I've not done my maiden speech yet, and I was happy to just do it right away, is because my mother said she wanted to come down for it. Right. But my mum needs about three years' notice to come somewhere <laughs> like London. And I don't think it's going to happen because you don't get an awful lot of notice. Mm -hmm. So if I put in a bid today to speak in a debate on Thursday, I might find out on Wednesday mm -hmm. that I'm speaking. So I think probably I'm just going to look and find the right debate and get my name in for that. The other thing about maiden speeches, though, I sat with colleagues this week who were told uh, they had 10 minutes, so they'd written a 10-minute speech. And then during the course of the debate, the speaker said, there are so many people wishing to speak in this debate, I'm cutting it down to eight minutes. Then later, there are so many people, I'm cutting it down to seven minutes, and it went all the way down to four minutes. Oh, I would be devastated. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a four-minute speech. Then I'm going to write a five-minute speech. I'm, I can't, I'm really bad at cutting down mm -hmm. on things, speech and everything, you know. <laughs> um, I'm really bad at cutting down on things. So I'm going to start with what I need to say in the four minutes and then I'll have expansion. So I'll be sitting there. I will have notes because I'm not Tommy Shepherd. I'm not Philippa Whitford. Um, and I will just pick up the one according to how many minutes I've got. So if we see the speaker sort of give you the nod, the nod that it's five minutes, a swift change of A4 will be in order. Oh, yeah, and I'll just be... I'll be crushed by that. What I might do, Jerry, is I might get you to film me doing the actual full thing. <laughs> Make it available. Just, just as you sit down, give the YouTube link to it. And yeah. This is my real speech. This is the full one. <laughs> this is what I wanted to say. <laughs> uh, this week saw the untimely death of Charles Kennedy and people from all across Scottish and UK politics paid tribute to a man that most people saw as quite affable and reasonable. Um, I think politics will be poorer without him. Yeah, I I um, got the news whatever morning it broke. I think it was uh, Tuesday morning, and um, I saw it online, and and I thought it was one of these poorly poor taste uh, joke stories. I didn't, you know, I thought don't be ridiculous. And then obviously, I read further, and and it was true. And I was really, really very shocked. And I think it, you know, it kind of needs to act as a reminder that just because you're in a different different political party doesn't mean that you're a better person, doesn't mean they're not a good person. Charles Kennedy was a brilliant parliamentarian. But the other thing about him, for somebody who became a politician at the age of 23, um, so therefore must have had not a huge amount of life experience, he still managed to relate to ordinary people pretty well. Um, so yeah and it was nice to hear the tributes and somebody who's been there a long time said to me later you know 
all of those tributes. Some people could pass on and they would get tributes. They wouldn't be as heartfelt as those ones. Mm -hmm. um, I particularly liked um, when Ian Blackford, who uh, won the seat that had been Charles Kennedy's seat, when he spoke about it, he'd known him for a long time. Um, and I was particularly pleased that he spoke. But I was sitting on the Labour benches uh, because it was the only place I could get a seat. Um, and I suddenly, and I looked up and I suddenly, I did a double take. I saw in the gallery this wee mini-me of Charles Kennedy. And uh, it was this wee ten-year-old boy. Um, and I asked Diane Abbott, who was sitting next to me, I said, is that his son? And she said, yeah, well, it couldn't be anybody else's, could it? And I thought, how brave, how incredibly brave of him to come here and listen to this. And I watched him, I tried not to watch him too closely because it must have been so hard for him. But I, he was holding his mum's hand the whole time and every so often he would look up at her and he was biting his lip and um, he was there, but I'm not sure he was taking in what everyone was saying. Um, he, because, you know, I think it would have been too difficult for him to listen. Some of the Lib Dem MPs addressed him directly um, and, you know, said how much they'd loved his father and how much his father had loved him. And that was just so, so sad. And it must have been, it's something that, I think he'll be glad he did in future years. But the wee boy, you know, just a day after his dad's passed away, you know, he was so brave to come and do that, so brave. Yeah. Alex Salmon secured an adjournment debate on Trident this week, uh, specifically around the safety issues that have been raised in the media recently. Um, we talked about, you know, security of the of the submarines, the disrepair of the equipment, and, like, Mr Bean-esque reports of, like, um, accidents at sea, basically. Mm. Did you attend that debate? How did that go? I did. Um, I thought it, I couldn't not attend it. It was such an important debate and I wanted to hear what the minister had to say. I, I really, that was a waste of time. Um, but um, I thought it was good that, that Alec had put in for that. Brendan O'Hara also put in a bid for it, but I think your name's just taken out the hat and Alec's name was taken out the hat. Um, it's a funny thing, you know, that it's such an alarming you know, dossier that, that um, this guy has produced that, that sometimes when governments sort of poo-poo things like that, even though you don't believe them, you sort of feel reassured, almost <laughs> reassured. But, you know, I'm still very anxious about it and I think we should be anxious about it. I think the statement, well, I think the minister said um, in the statement of reading it back, said um, our first duty is to reassure the public. And that's quite interesting because the first duty isn't to reassure the public. The first duty should be to check everything's safe. okay, make, yeah. make it's okay, yeah. and then give us the truth. Um, so first, so if the first duty is stated to reassure the public, I think that casts the rest of the statement in a kind of different light. I think I really think as well that she. Yeah, I agree with you there on that one. I hadn't thought about that, but the other thing that concerned me was so it was a you know a series of accusations, if you like, a series of concerns. And um, her response was that every single one of those uh, concerns had been looked into in great detail and every one of them had been found to be unfounded. And then she said that um, he had... Um, 
said in the dossier that he'd several times spoken to his seniors and got no response. And she said there was absolutely no record of him ever having spoken to anyone. So basically what she's saying is that none of the many things that he's expressed concern about are true. In other words, he has made it up or he's mm. lying but she didn't, without saying those words. So she must be saying that he's lying. And then she says that he's lying about having reported it. On the other hand, when I think Brendan O'Hara, who is the constituency MP there, I think it was him who intervened and asked about um, Mr McNeely, um, asked about his health and how he was and whether or not he was under arrest because they hadn't arrested him. They'd taken him into protective custody or <laughs> whatever. And and that, because they hadn't actually arrested him, he wasn't allowed legal assistance. Mm. So he was basically on his own. So Brendan O'Hara interjected and asked about this and she said he was absolutely, he was down in Portsmouth, he was absolutely free to come and go as he pleases and they were just concerned about him. So why would they be just concerned about him if he told all these lies and if he'd lied about reporting it to senior officers? If if he, it was, what she's saying is he's either a liar or a fantasist. So why are they just concerned about him and why is nothing happening? The fact that he's free to come and go as he pleases and no charges have been brought tells me that the first part of her statement was incorrect and that he wasn't making it up mm. or lying or exaggerating. Mm. Yeah, because you would think if someone was lying and exaggerating, that would be in that be dis- I mean, in a normal job, that'd be disciplinary or, or something would happen. Yeah, um, it just seems like yeah, they, they just want that to go away. And the responses around um, nothing to see here, it just it felt mm. the five hundred word letter that first came out, and mm. then it was basically a five hundred word statement <laughs> practically mm. at the end of it. Um, I felt like interjecting and saying, well, in that case, do you not think he should be charged or sacked? But then I thought, what if I just give her ideas? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I would would have been saying it to make a point. Yeah, but... um, mm -hmm. But then I thought, no, No, just say nothing. That might force someone's hand. (laughs) Um, I think we have become kind of numb to the fact that we've got WMD just up the road Mm -hmm. from where Mm -hmm. we're sitting just now. And it's kind of... If you ever see those diagrams about if something was to happen... The, the area around about Glasgow that would immediately just cease to be is yeah. terrifying. And yeah. We're all just used to it. I know. We are just used to it. And it's it's the same with anything until something happens. You know, um, we're all quite happy to fly around the world until you got that series of plane crashes and then mm-hmm. you sort of remember that in actual fact aeroplanes do crash, mm-hmm. you know. But yeah, this is something that that we shouldn't have to live with. Yeah. And, you know, uh, people in Scotland don't want it. And the politicians in Scotland don't want it. It shouldn't be there. Yeah, if you don't want to fly, you don't have to get in a plane. Yeah, but we've no choice. We have to live near Trident, mm-hmm. near weapons of mass destruction. That was the end of the first part of the podcast. Anna and I will be back in a few days with the second part. If you'd like to get in touch, you can contact us on Twitter at ParlamentalPod, on Facebook, search for Parliamental, and via email at parliamentalpodcast at gmail.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a review if you like the show. Bye. Bye.